Everyone knows you're supposed to be nice. Be nice is a narrative of Christian ethics. Some say Christianity is about loving everyone and being nice. But we evangelicals often dismiss such talk as pablum. We prefer to discuss the glorious doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. And indeed, it is a glorious doctrine in Galatians. But still, there's this nagging sense that if we're Christians, we really ought to be nice, shouldn't we? What makes it so hard to be good and nice? We heard from Galatians last week that we are in the middle of a conflict between our flesh and the Spirit of God. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. This is no small disagreement. The flesh is in passionate rebellion against the very Spirit of God. But what is the flesh? Although in some translations it is rendered the sinful nature, the word for flesh just means flesh. It's the Greek word sarx, which comes from a word for pull or draw, indicating it's the meat that can be pulled from the bone. It's, it's this stuff. Sarx is the root of some interesting English words. Sarcophagus is the combination of sarx with phagus, meaning the eating or consuming of the flesh. In Greco-Roman culture, the limestone enclosures in which they buried their dead were thought to hasten the body's decay. Sort of icky, but a great picture of where the flesh is going. The flesh, we are told in 1 Corinthians 15, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's going to a box where it will turn into dust. But as mentioned last week, the flesh is more than my material body. There is a mysterious non-material aspect to the flesh integral to my being that is locked in a spiritual conflict with God. It is also that part of my being through which I live my life in this world. And God has chosen to leave me and my flesh for his purpose. Romans 6-8, through 8, as mentioned throughout the sermon series, has much to say about this conflict. I am buried with Christ through baptism into death and raised and walk in newness of life. I am to consider myself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. As a result, I am no longer to let sin reign in my mortal body so that I obey its lusts. And yet I, with Paul in Romans 7, find myself to be doing what I don't understand and what I hate. I'm sold in bondage into sin. Nothing good dwells in my flesh. I must say with Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, for on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the living God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. But the promise of Romans 8.1 is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I take great hope in Romans 8.11 that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. This is great. Now all I have to do is live by the spirit. And amazingly, there are YouTube videos on how to live by the spirit. <laughs> I was looking for the 10-step plan to guaranteed spiritual living. I found a five-step plan, which is even better. And although Pastor John laid out some important steps to take in living by the Spirit last week, the practice of living by the Spirit is hard to put a finger on. Consider Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel and master of the law, is entirely flummoxed by this discussion. How can these things be? Jesus gently directs Nicodemus to believe in him for eternal life. Indeed, this living by the Spirit is an exercise of faith. Galatians 2.20 says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So the best we can do this week at understanding how to live by the Spirit is to, one, see what a life in the flesh looks like. Two, see what a life led by the Spirit looks like. And three, receive a practical challenge on walking by the Spirit. We begin with verse 19. The deeds of the flesh are evident. They're manifest, obvious. They are known. They are familiar and common. Some may look at this list of scandalous sins and say, well, I, I suppose there are people who do these things, but not so fast. The flesh does not do these things because it didn't have the right upbringing or get raised in the proper environment or go to the right finishing school. The flesh does these things because it is naturally opposed to the very spirit of God. The corruption of the flesh is common to everyone who is born of Adam. Adam brought sin and death into the world, as we are told in Romans 5. The sins of the flesh are universal. At the same time, we're not to think, I am the only one who is guilty of these sins. No, you're not the only one. But rather, no temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There are, my, there are, by my count, four types of fleshly deeds. Sexual immorality, idolatry, the world's bad medicine cabinet, and what Jerry Bridges calls the respectable sins. We begin with sexual immorality. Now, those of you with King James will first see the word adultery in this list. This word does not appear in the early manuscripts of Galatians, and so it does not appear in the more modern translations. But it is comfortably contained in the next word, which appears as fornication in the King James, but is typically rendered immorality in more modern translations. It is the word porneos, from which we get our word pornography. It is sexual immorality. But what is sexual immorality? 
There are certainly many voices on this subject, but the one voice that draws our attention should be that of Jesus. Recall his discussion with the Pharisees in Matthew 19 on the one great sexual morality issue of the day amongst Jews, which was divorce. The Pharisees were attempting to catch Jesus in a trap. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus does not attempt to answer their question with a discussion of the tenets of the law, but goes back to first principles. He says, have you not read that he made them male and female? This, of course, is a reference to the passage in Genesis 1, which describes God making mankind in his image and expressing that image in two sexes, male and female. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. But Jesus goes on to quote Genesis 2. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is God's pattern for marriage and sexual union, one man and one woman for life who come together in physical union and give birth as God allows to children who will grow up and find partners in marriage to do the same. It is the pattern by which God glorifies himself in showing his passionate love for mankind and Christ's sacrificial love for his church. Jesus then delivers the punchline. Let no one separate what God has joined. The Pharisees immediately object, citing Moses' command for, one, for a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce to send her away. Jesus' reply is stunning. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart, but it was not that way from the beginning. Jesus was pointing out that the law, weak as it was in the flesh, could only deal with the reality of sin and try to regulate the consequences of sin. The Pharisees were using it as an excuse for the stubbornness of their flesh. But God's design was from the beginning for male and female to be united in marriage for life and for sex to be an honored union protected within the institution of one man, one woman marriage. So a working, a working definition for sexual immorality is any way in which we create a separation or defy God's pattern of one man, one woman marriage for life with an exclusive protection of sex within marriage. Therefore, sexual immorality includes divorce, adultery, premarital sex, polygamy, homosexuality, transgenderism, sexual violence, and other like sins. I would note that many, but not all, of these things are legal according to man's laws, and some are actively celebrated and promoted by the world's authorities. But it is not our place to judge outsiders. Indeed, the point of the passage is that these acts of sexual immorality are common deeds of the flesh. The flesh naturally opposes the Spirit of God. So because marriage and sex so fundamentally glorify God and His design, the flesh is naturally inclined to commit sex, acts of sexual immorality. Though the world views these acts as innovations of a sophisticated, evolved society, it is important to note that sexual promiscuity was not invented during the Enlightenment. Sexual immorality is as old as sin, and there's little about it that is novel. By the same token, 
God's pattern for marriage and sex was not invented by churchmen, capitalists, European explorers, or ancient clerics for the purpose of keeping the peasants under control. Marriage was from the beginning instituted by God for his glory and our joy. But Jesus extends his definition of sexual sin beyond physical deeds. In the Sermon on the Mount, he challenges men with the charge that looking at a woman with lust is adultery. Your very thoughts are subject to judgment as sin. Similarly, Paul uses the word impurity to describe thoughts and actions that are unclean. This would capture things like lustful thoughts, dirty jokes, innuendo, suggestive imagery, immodest clothing, sexual harassment, and pornography. Perhaps pornography is the most notorious form of impurity. Pornography is pure poison. There is no safe dosage of pornography. Its addictive power destroys your mind, your life, your relationships, and leaves you with the weight of guilt and shame. We've offered the Conquer Series program to men in this church over the last several years with some powerful results, and I hope to see it continue. The flesh is easy pickings for pornography. Sensuality or debauchery completes the list of sexual sins in the flesh. Debauchery is a rich word that comes from a word for debarking a tree. It refers to being torn from your moral roots. It evokes a picture of a boldly insolent, in-your-face, unrestrained sexual carelessness. It is a picture of our society bobbing about in a tossing sea of sexual relativism, convinced we are progressing in freedom. Idolatry is the next category of fleshly works. Idolatry is the worship of that which is seen. Indeed, sight is a powerful avenue for rebellion against God. Consider Jesus' temptation by the devil. When Satan, the ruler of this world, shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world at once and offers them to him if he would worship Satan, Jesus answers, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus takes us back to the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Idolatry replaces the true God with a substitute, an idol. And the flesh worships idols because it's in rebellious conflict against the Spirit of God. Now, most of us are not in our basements burning incense to little statues of Chemosh or Milcom. But there are other things that we put in place of God. One of the passages we read today said, greed is idolatry. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. I am grieved that gambling is so enthusiastically pursued nationwide. Lotteries and sports gambling are addictive traps that easily ensnare the flesh with devastating results for families. One observation a couple of people in my Sunday school class have made is that when the flesh substitutes an idol for God, it is really putting itself in the place of God. Yes, the flesh may be substituting money or pleasure or another idol for God, but in the end, it is doing what it wants. The flesh will worship anything but God because it is in conflict 
with God's spirit. The next category of fleshly endeavor is the world's bad medicine cabinet. We begin with what is translated witchcraft or sorcery. Although these words have a colorful medieval flair, and occult practices are a serious issue in society, I don't think they focus us on the contemporary issue that is most relevant. The word is pharmakeia, from which we derive pharmaceutical. It's talking about medicine, especially illicit drugs, potions, if you will, that alter the mind and create seemingly magical effects. Now, I'm not talking about medicines carefully prescribed under the care of a physician or, or the appropriate use of over-the-counter med medications. I'm talking about the flesh's deep desire to find any way except the gospel to deal with the pain of a sinful existence. In our flesh, we all deal with disappointment, trauma, physical pain, loneliness, boredom, and other deep hurts. Drugs have always been a way to get relief from the pain of life, even for a short while. Today, the drugs of choice are opioids and fentanyl. When I was young, it was LSD, heroin, and speed. Later, it was cocaine and crack, but it's always been a crisis. Drugs have been taking people away from their families and loved ones for as long as sin has been in the world. Also in this category is drunkenness, which is taking alcohol to do the same things drugs do relieve the pain of a sinful world. The flesh will smoke, sniff, snort, swallow, or inject anything it can to take away the pain of sin. It'll try anything but the gospel. The world offers us bad medicines that cannot heal our injuries and cannot relieve our pain. And the flesh is eager to take them. And then there's the related matter of carousing, or in the unfortunate rendering of the NIV orgies. The New Testament lexicographer Thayer tells us the Greek word here, used from Herodotus on down, refers to a nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who, after supper, parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or other gods and sing and play before the houses of their friends. Today, we would call that partying or clubbing. Some people think that's college. But carousing reflects the fact that as bad as the flesh is by itself, when you get a group of people together who are sold out to their flesh, they encourage each other to abandon all inhibitions. But finally, we have the respectable or acceptable sins. These are the sins that have mostly to deal with how we treat each other. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. Some may wonder why these are in the same list with sexual sins and drug abuse. But these are the works of the flesh. They range from scandalous sins for which we freely judge others to acceptable sins. Their common thread is that the flesh eagerly desires to do them in rebellion against God. We start with enmities and strife, or hatreds and discord, and jealousy and outbursts of anger. The flesh invents enemies out of thin air in its desire to control its world and justify its defensive behavior. And where there are real enemies, it fails to reconcile, so it can always have something to fight. 
The flesh finds just the wrong words to say so it can stir up strife that could otherwise be avoided. The flesh takes jealousy beyond its proper domain of protecting sacred relationships like marriage and parenting. The flesh extends jealousy to envious and contentious rivalries. Jealousy takes a proprietary view of friendships, and the flesh constantly worries about who is friends with whom. The flesh indulges in outbursts of anger to frighten and intimidate others or to manipulate them into giving concessions. The flesh does all these things to secure status, power, and comfort. But in the end, although it may seem to work in the short term, it mostly creates turmoil. Finally, we have disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. Disputes is also translated elsewhere, selfish ambition, from a word meaning a desire to put oneself forward by having a partisan and factious spirit. This is what Paul is dealing with in Galatians, with outsiders who came in with their false gospel to create a following for themselves. They desired to exalt themselves in the flesh by getting the Galatians to accept circumcision for salvation. But where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition exist, it says in James, there's disorder in every evil thing. Likewise, dissensions and factions describe the breaking up of the unified body of Christ into parts opposed to each other. The flesh creates factions because it is in conflict with God's spirit. For God's desire for his body is expressed in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. But the flesh divides the body of Christ. It seeks to create followings and movements and divisions. The flesh loves its isms and ists. If you believe in somethingism, that makes you a somethingist. And if you are a somethingist, I know exactly what you're thinking because I read up on somethingism on the World Wide Web, and therefore I know what your position is. I can answer for you without even talking to you, and best of all, I can warn people about you because you are a somethingist, and whatever you believe, it's no good. The flesh crates up and labels people so it can put them in their place. The flesh loves to pass out jerseys and make teams, and regrettably, Factions, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, are inevitable. They are inevitable because of the flesh. Finally, envying rounds out the acceptable sins. Envying is a resentful dislike of another person who has something one desires. It is prohibited by the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. But the flesh rejects the commandments of God and embraces the slavery of envy. Envy creates a spiral of bitterness discontent, and hate. But Paul warns us in verse 21 that all these sins and sins like them are characteristics of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a warning. He is telling us beforehand so that we can take action. These are things that are done by people who will not see God's kingdom. So don't do them. Because if you believed in Christ, you have been saved and you're going to the kingdom of God, but your flesh is not. It's going to the rot box 
So don't follow it. Instead, we follow the Spirit of God. For we are children of God, being led by the Spirit of God. The life of the Spirit of God is described in verses 22 and following. These are the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit describes outcomes. The life of the Spirit is less about deeds and more about outcomes, who I am and how I live my life. And most of the fruits have to do with how I deal with others. We start with love. We know love by this, it says in 1 John 3, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. God showed us what love is by his son's death on the cross for our sin. And our love for each other is described practically in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not keep a record of past wrongs. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love is the foundation of all the other elements of, of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy. Joy is gladness. Indescribable joy comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Joy is the happy outcome of the Spirit's work in our life. And related to joy is peace. There is peace with God and the peace of God. Having been justified by faith in Christ Jesus, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. When we believe in Christ, our war with God is over, and his anger about our sin is satisfied. And he gives us peace, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God... Will guard, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When I have peace with God and the peace of God, I can work to be at peace with all men. Patience. I live in a world with people who do not know God and live according to the flesh. But we are called to be patient with others just as God is patient with us. We are to bear with the weaknesses of others rather than criticizing them for their shortcomings. We are to bear one another's burdens, including their sins, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Kindness and goodness. We are to be morally good, walking in integrity and uprightness and kindness, for God's kindness leads us to repentance. And so we return his kindness to others. Faithfulness. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. Great is his faithfulness. In the spirit, we are to have fidelity in the character of one who can be relied on. Gentleness. We are to be meek and to do things in a spirit of gentleness. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Self-control. 
Here's the one part of the fruit of the Spirit most relevant to the more scandalous deeds of the flesh. Self-control is mastery over one's desires, especially the sensual appetites. Interestingly, it is the person who is controlled by the Spirit who exhibits self-control. For putting the self or flesh in control only leads to a lack of self-control as the flesh pursues its desires without restraint. Like the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is not an exhaustive list, but one that frames out the life lived in in the fruit of the Spirit. There is no law against the fruit of the Spirit. The life controlled by the Spirit delights in the law of God and has no need to be regulated by the law. And so, as it says in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. Then how does it work? How does living a life in the Spirit result in a righteous life. Verse 24 says, Those who belong to Christ, who have believed on him for salvation, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we are joined to Christ in faith, we are crucified with him, as it says in Galatians 2.20. Our old self is buried with him in baptism into death, and we are raised with Christ and walk in newness of life. Our body of sin is rendered powerless, it says in Romans 6, 6, and we are no longer slaves of sin. The flesh's power is utterly destroyed by being crucified. But the word for crucified, which appears as past tense in English, is a Greek tense that is indeterminate in time. It is a crucifixion that happened when we trusted in Christ and one that continues as we grow in Christ. Romans 8.13 says that if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, not only is our flesh crucified, but we also crucify its passions and desires. Through His Spirit, we put away that which drives the flesh. We go after root issues that cause us to follow the flesh. Passions come from a word meaning suffering. The passion of Christ and Passion Week are examples of this meaning of passion. Passion is the desire that comes from suffering. Indeed, much of what the flesh does is both consequence of and response to the sufferings of life with its sin, pain, boredom, loneliness, rejection, and other miseries. When we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, We not only put away the cravings that stem from ambition, lust, and envy, but also those which arise from our desire to alleviate the sufferings of life. Which brings us to the practicum of this passage. If we belong to Christ and by the Spirit have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, how does it play out in our lives? We who believe in Christ are said to live by the Spirit. The Spirit animates our being, controls our conscience, guides our actions. We live by the Spirit, and being being children of God, we are led by a Spirit. Therefore, if we live by the Spirit, then we should also walk by the Spirit. Living in the Spirit is our state in Christ. When we come to Him in faith, walking in the Spirit is to exhibit the outcome of our state in Christ as displayed in our character and conscience, in our words and actions. Other people should be able to tell that we've been made alive by the Spirit 
because of the way we walk before them. So Paul ends today's passage with a practical challenge. Let us not become boastful. Said another way, let us not prove ourselves to be boastful or conceited. There are two ways in which we become boastful, according to Paul. Challenging one another and envying one another. It is interesting that Paul picks these as the practical exercise for walking in the Spirit. Notice, he does not pick the lurid sins of the flesh, sexual sin, idolatry, drunkenness. He starts with the way we treat each other. Let's start with these sins if we want to walk in the Spirit. Challenging one another. Challenging comes from a word meaning challenging someone to combat. Challenging someone comes from a contentious, demanding spirit that is driven by the flesh. Well, you might say, well, I, I don't really challenge anyone. Let me challenge you on that. <laughs> do you believe that things would be better if everyone did things your way? And do you correct people based on this theory? When someone is talking to you, do you listen to what they're saying or do you formulate a response in your head while they're talking? Do you straw man arguments? That is, do you attempt to recast what someone has said in the worst way possible so that you can prove them wrong? Do you find yourself saying, that's not exactly how I'd say it? Do people need to say things like you say them? Exactly. When someone is doing something different than what you expect based on previous discussions with them, do you say, I thought you were going to do so-and-so? Do people need to check in with you before they change their plans? If someone tells you something new, do you thank them for telling you, or do you demand to know why you weren't previously notified? Do you hold your own perjury court? Do you hold people accountable for what they said or what you think they said? Do you act? as a judge. Now there is a way to correct people who are erring, and that is in Galatians 6, which will require that you come back next week. <laughs> but for this passage, it is important to understand that a demanding, challenging spirit is born of boastfulness and is of the flesh. So too an envious spirit is of the flesh, as has been noted previously, envying one another indicates a reciprocal feeling of ill will or resentment coming from a desire for what the other has. Envying begins with an entitled attitude that asserts one is due what another has. It stems from discontent and blossoms into covetousness. Envying is never satisfied. Paul has given us a thought-provoking application of the passage. He tells us that if we live by the Spirit, then we must walk by the Spirit. And that begins with our pride as it is manifested in a provocative and envious way of dealing with each other. We should begin with our relationships at home. Are we demanding and envious toward our family at home? What can we do to change how we deal with each other, husbands and wives, children and parents. Then there's church. That's the context in which this passage was written. Are there changes to make in how we deal with each other in the church? Assess yourselves. Do you need to address a challenging or envious spirit 
in your life? Of course, it applies to your work and community where the challenges with people can be just as difficult. We who believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation live by faith and by God's Holy Spirit. But our life, which we live in the flesh, is embroiled in a conflict between our flesh and God's Spirit. The works of the flesh are powerfully seductive. But we are to crucify them and follow the leading of God's Spirit, especially in our relationships with each other. Specifically, by God's Spirit, we are to put away our prideful bent toward challenging one another and envying one another. Be nice. Let's stand for our final hymn.